From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Disney historian, Michael Bowling, and I'm joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, spring, <clears throat> excuse me. I was just going to say, spring is in full <laughs> bloom out here, and so are my allergies. Um, Clearly, people who've been, I mean, everything is. I mean, it's just like everything opened up. We're we're in eighty degree weather now, which I'm sorry to all of our friends who live, you know, up in you know coon holler indiana or wherever where you are still in you know five feet of snow but i mean everything has just um burst open like overnight here and um it's wonderful the the fragrance of orange blossoms are heavy in the air around our house and all of that i am so allergic (laughs) and um but uh, i love it i mean i i just love springtime and you know because everything was just so drab around here even though it was not covered in snow um i mean it was just so dead looking and especially after the drought and now just to see after all of our rain to see it all bounce back and yeah leaf out and bloom and all of that it's wonderful so um, I can't speak about Orlando right now because you you should have came up with an improvised uh, intro on it, like from North California to to Southern California, because <laughs> I'm currently uh, I'm currently in beautiful Anaheim right now out here you are that's yeah. right as of this recording because again a little uh backstage magic here we are recording this episode a few weeks in advance and craig is actually in waltz park yeah with some of our walt disney world crew um here uh, working on a project and, and actually i'm going to be down there and we'll we'll see craig um this well it'll have been a couple weeks in the past by the time you hear this but yeah i'm craig and i are going to hang out and check out pixar fest and things like that i'll be on the um best and worst of disneyland which who knows it might be already you might have already seen me by this time so anyway (laughs) maybe maybe not (laughs) yeah so a lot a lot of things to look forward to yeah so anyway Good. Well, we we have a, a, a very special show for you today. Recently at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, I attended a talk by Marcy Smothers about her new book, Eat Like Walt. Now, Marcy is a noted personality in the Northern California world of food and wine. She has hosted several radio programs, including The Food Guy and Marcy's show with the Food Network's Guy Fieri. Her love 
of all things Disney, and especially Disneyland, inspired her to delve into Walt Disney's world of food. She previously offered snacks, adventures in food, aisle by aisle. Marcy, welcome to Connecting with Walt. Hi, guys. So fun to be with you. Oh, delighted to have you. And uh, just, uh, first of all, when I when I purchased your book, I couldn't put it down. This this book was written for our listeners of Connecting with Walt. Now, now when our listeners hear the title of your book, that it's Eat Like Walt, they're probably thinking this is a cookbook. And all it has are Walt's favorite recipes, like his famous chili. But Eat Like Walt really is a feast for every Disney fan, but in a very but maybe not in a way people might expect. Well, you so, know, it's, 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 it, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, can, so can you tell our listeners really what is the book about? Well, the book is, just going backwards a little bit, I wanted to write a book about the food of Disneyland because everything tastes better at Disneyland and Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. And my agent said to me, look, what are you going to do that's different that they're doing on Instagram and blogging and Twitter? You're going to have to find something completely unique for being able to sell this. And that was a really good charge because it forced me to do a lot of research for the proposal and I just had this idea that Walt had intended the food to be entertaining and immersive like the attractions you know just because in today's world it really is proven but I wanted back in 1955 was that the case and then I found an insert for the independent press telegraph and it said welcome to the kingdom of good eating where the food is as fabulous as the fun by Walt and then I knew I had my personal concept that he did want the food at Disneyland to be like a ride, just as fun as he could possibly make it be. So I sold the book to Disney based on the culinary history of Disneyland. And there were recipes included, and the idea was you could eat like Walt after you heard about a restaurant, say the Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship restaurant in Fantasyland, which is gone now but stood where Dumbo is today, you could then go and make the famous tuna burger. So you could eat like Walt did because this book, Eat Like Walt, is a time capsule of Walt Disney's life. And all the recipes, it's a history book with recipes. All of the recipes are vintage and authentic to Walt's era. And so as I started researching and once I sold the book and I got into the archives, which my friends is as fun as it sounds. <laughs> you go in, you say, I know I would like to see menus. I want to see memoirs. You know, I, I want to see the original Disneyland. Um, let's say programs and new and the Disneyland times and it's and they just bring you these boxes. It's like Christmas. You open them up. You don't know what's inside of them. There's all these historical documents that you could actually touch and read. So, but in addition to the, the all the information and research I obtained from the Disney archives, I think a few things are unique to eat like Walt in that everybody in the book, no exceptions, knew Walt. So there is no third person. My dad told me. My aunt said. And that was done through interviews with the family, Walt's family, that were very, very, very helpful to me. And you might have, you know, just introduced them at the Walt Disney Family Museum because they attended the talk or some of them attended the talk. Right. Also with men and women that worked with Walt, specifically a few, Jim Cora that worked with Walt since 1957, who was a tremendous help to me, Marty Sklar, amazing. Tony Baxter qualified to be in the book with one of my favorite stories because he did work at Disneyland when he was 17 at Carnation at Walt came up to his window. Mm-hmm. So he at least met Walt, you know, and so the stories as as, it, as the development of the book, it just got to be a much bigger book than I had it in 
you know, intended. It was became more than the culinary history of Disneyland. It became all about Walt at home and stories that have never been told before. And then the studio chapter was not a, was not planned, but it's one of the you know big important chapters in the book because Walt was 39 years old when his state-of-the-art studio opened in Burbank in 1940. And while he never intended to be a restaurateur, there were four state-of-the-art restaurants on his lot, and Walt was subsidizing food like we think of in Silicon Valley now, Facebook and Pixar, et cetera, et cetera. He knew he wanted to give his employees a good meal at a fair price and, and then incentivize them not to lose the lot, of course, and to be more productive. So the book grew into a big culinary history of Disneyland, but it's also a history book about Walt, the everyday man, because everybody eats and all these stories and anecdotes that came through the lens of food. Every time another one, I'd find another one. I just said to myself, Eureka, I'm on the right path. There really is something here. Exactly. And it's not just, and I really want to emphasize with our listeners, it's not just a culinary history. This is, you will get insights into Walt, the, the, his character, his playfulness, his interaction with his family, the people he worked with. I, it, there's, it's a wonderful and very succinct history of each land of the park and, and a little history of the studios and even where Walt liked to hang out when he wasn't at the studios. So, uh, th- so even if you're not a foodie, this, this, this is not a book just for foodies. So I, I, I really want to make that very clear because I went, went into it thinking it was and then was just so delighted that that's why I call it this was this is a this is a feast of many courses. Whatever your Disney fandom is, there is a course for you in this book. So um, Oh, that's so, so cool for you to say that. And oh, you know, it's and to your point, it's like I did I wanted to present Walt as the not deify him, but present him of course, you know, I have as as whom I could paint the picture of Walt Disney as a human being. And so when I found this quote from Herb Ryman, so obviously Herb's passed away, but, you know, again, everyone knew Walt who's in the book, so that includes interviews I might have read with some of the people, even though they're long gone. And Herb said to another writer, it's for people like yourself to have the privilege and the duty of presenting Walt as a human being, a person that can be known, someone you can be close to. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, I just started crying. I'm like, that's what I was trying to do, but Herbie put it into words. And so I put that quote on my desktop, my laptop, and my refrigerator. And every day when I was running at home or at Disneyland, which, by the way, I wrote a lot of my book at Disneyland for my audience, with my audience. I am the reader as much as the writer, and I knew I wanted to be at Waltz Park imbued with all of the magic that he created that is still there 60-plus years later. But those words from her were always guiding me. You know, yes, Walt was a spectacular human being and one of the most complex and brilliant men that ever lived. But he was also a human being. And that is what I, when you say things like that, it makes me feel so happy that people are getting to know a side of Walt they might not have known from any of the other, whatever, thousands of biographies that have been written about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, absolutely. I agree. Um, now, what was your journey into becoming a Disney fan? I mean, how, how did you become one? Well, I grew up in Southern California, and going to Disneyland was always my favorite day of the year. My grandparents always took us, and we would drive down in their Volvo and play the game back in the day of who could see the Matterhorn first. It seemed so, <laughs> so low-tech, you know? But, I think we all played uh, that. You know, it was like, yeah, right, so here it is, and we would get one treat. We were a modest family, you know, and my grandfather would always, the sweet thing about him is, 
he was brilliant. He never graduated high school, but he read, you know, several books a week and played Scrabble every night. So he loved to read. And so we would be in the park and he would put a blanket down somewhere on Main Street USA and read for hours so that we would have the best view of the Main Street Electrical Parade. So all the, you know, so I just, it was my favorite, not only my favorite of the year, I think it's some of my happiest memories of a somewhat complicated childhood. And then as an adult, I was going all the time because I was working in L.A. as a casting director and then a television producer. I was always going. And then when I had kids, you know, of course, they amplifies it and, and more because now you have children to share it with. And I still I was always even before I knew I was going to write a long before I knew I was gonna ever write a book about Disneyland. I always had that feeling that we say you're coming home. What is this feeling? This feeling I have every time I walk through the gate, see the giant floral Mickey, you know, go under the railroad tracks you know, and see Town Square USA and Sleeping Beauty Castle. And I know that it's the same feeling I share with millions of people. And we may not be able to quite put our finger on it, but we want to go back to it because we're there, it's familiar, it's instant, and we're home. And I still feel that way, but I mean, maybe I spent 80 days there writing the book or more. I'm going tomorrow <laughs> to research my next book. Yeah, so and I live in Northern California, Sonoma County, so it's not a far jaunt, but it's not like a drive anymore. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, it, what what a wonderful journey too. And that you you know you're you became a Disney fan sort of through your grandfather. I mean that's such a lovely memory, you know. And um, but now, what was your inspiration for combining your appreciation and talent for food and wine with your Disney fandom to write Eat Like Walt? I mean, you you sort of touched upon it a bit earlier, but that 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 was really unique to combine two passions together yeah. <laughs> you do get that said a lot like who, how did he ever think of this idea well desperation i wanted to write about the book about Disneyland. <laughs> Duh. i mean you know i had to find some way to make it a, <laughs> a viable prospect but you know it first of all i love i often say at my talks you know raise your hand if you think you know the most about Disneyland than anybody else like we all have our insider things right? we think that we know we love to show it. same thing with food you know people are so passionate about food because Really, if you think about it, when somebody says they're going to Disneyland, there's usually two questions that arise almost immediately. What's your favorite food and what's your favorite ride? They're so closely that the experience of Disneyland is tied to those two things so much. Mm -hmm. So that was something that got my brain thinking is people associate food with this. I associate food with this. I associate the food that I ate as a kid. I associate the food that I can't wait to get back at the park that's there now. And I had and I was curious about the iconic foods, but I really didn't of the past of Walt's era. I knew a little, I mean, I wasn't alive. I knew a little bit about the Tishan Terrace, but not much. You know, it never, I kind of, somebody had told me there was a pirate ship in Fantasyland. I'm like, what? You know, so it just, it really just grew and, and evolved. And as I said, you know, I, I, I was told, you know, is so much happening in social media that's immediate. And I'd like to say something really quickly, tangentially is, I believe, and I did a quick essay about this. I think that Walt would have, you know, mixed things about, cell phones and, and you know, smartphones in the parks. Of course, he would hate them on the dark rides. Like, I hate. Mm -hmm. I don't pay attention. Don't text. But he would love all the Instagram and people saying, you know, here's what I did. I'm on this one. He would love that these parks around the world, people were seeing immediately what was happening. I think that would absolutely, absolutely fascinate him. So anyway, I did want to, I did want to write about the food and had to be something different than what the world is doing with social media. And I just, kept researching. I did have a couple really good friends that helped me. Tom Fitzgerald, who's one of the lead Imagineers now, and Kathy Mangum, I think she's the head of Epcot for Imagineering. They're just, they're good friends. And so I would come up with, you know, research and I would ask them also to vet it because guys, just because it's on the internet, <laughs> it's true. 
<laughs> or just because and a cast member says yeah. it, it's not doesn't right, mean exactly. it's true. <laughs> there is so much urban legend, and and, and fortunately, unfortunately, depend on what side of the fence you're on, including with some well-known people that that are good. I wouldn't necessarily label them historians, but they're good storytellers. Are saying this, I've absolutely blown out of the water. They're not true, and I don't mean that I wanted to dismiss them. I just was kind of seeking the truth, but a lot is untrue that's out there. So I would send it to Tom Fitzgerald, Kathy Mangum, and I would say, does this follow suit? You know, is this your understanding? And they were helping me to get it ready and in shape to turn into Disney editions for the proposal. And I just shaped along the way. I kept going to Disneyland. Like Oscar's a great story. Well, when I mm-hmm. met Oscar at Carnation Cafe, I didn't know who he was. He just started chatting me up and you can tell I like to talk. So, you know, an hour later, we were best friends, but I would, so here's how much I stalked Oscar. This was even before I had a book deal or thought about writing a book. I would position myself by Starbucks in that courtyard with the piano schools and the dental office and everything, because that's where Oscar would come from backstage. And I would sit there with my coffee, knowing that he came very early and I would be there waiting and I'd plump up and I'd ask him stories. So I was writing down stories about Oscar before I had a book. Once I had the book deal, and Oscar was still working at the time, I was able to get an official interview. And of course, I'm, I'm talking like all your listeners know, but Oscar is still mm-hmm. the longest running employee ever at Disneyland. He started in 1956. He did a lot of jobs, but mostly was at the Carnation Cafe. And so when I got the official interview with him, I did get, I mind a few more stories, but most of what I was able to write about Oscar was stuff that I learned before I had the book deal, which is pretty intriguing because if you look at what's written about Oscar, it's the same three things. You know, there's not much. And I think I'm very proud of the fact that I was really able to tell a story because I would say to Oscar, what do you want your legacy to be? And he said, well, I would like my trophies to be displayed somewhere at Disneyland. And I said, well, what about a window? And he kind of looked shrunk like he wasn't sure he'd be eligible. Let's all hope that he does get one right above oh, yeah. the Carnation Cafe. Exactly. And now that he's, but I, exactly. I wanted my, to do my piece that he would be forever a part a Disneyland history, at least in my book. And it was really fun to be able to do that for Oscar. Yeah. He was somebody that I wanted to talk about because he was such a fixture for people that ate at the Carnation Cafe, which is one of my favorite places to eat. And what do you uh, like the best at Carnation Cafe to eat? I, I like the meatloaf. (laughs) I don't know. You know what I've fallen in love with is the fried pickles. Yes, well, that oh, my favorite appetizer. Yes, I love the fried pickles, and I didn't think I would. They sound sort of disgusting, but they're delicious. Well, I didn't think I would either. Mm-hmm. So either, and you know, here's a fun fact that you may or may not know. But you can go to City Hall and get recipes for almost anything in Disneyland, including the fried pickles. Including the fried pickles. Oh, yeah. So if you, wherever you are, Plaza in fried chicken, I mean, they don't necessarily have everyone, but most, and if not, they'll get it and email you, but you walk in and they say, and they will give it to you. So that's, it, that's my book as a time capsule. I don't have any of the modern day recipes, but it is one that I acquired and it came in quantity. It's interesting. Even though it's for our guests, it was in restaurant quantities. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to break it down to be able to make it at home. And I do, sometimes I do. And I, you know, if I'm, so when I have this, I sort of eat like Walt dinner parties, which more and more people are having. And they use that hashtag, by the way, I love it. Eat like Walt on Insta. So I can see what you're doing. But when I have my eat like Walt parties, I wrote at, at Disneyland. Like I said, I also had created playlists. I only listen to music, Disney music of Walt's era. 
listened mm-hmm. to Mary Poppins soundtrack a lot. I built a playlist of all the attractions that were there when Walt was alive. I included Pirates because he planned it and Haunted Mansion because he planned it. And I would listen to that over and over when I was at Disneyland to get in, in the feeling of what it would be like to, you know, be with Walt. And so when I had the Disney dinner parties, I have all these different playlists that have accumulated. I'm very proud of my playlist and some have some modern day things too. And it sets the tone because, you know, we eat with our eyes, but there's been a lot of research on we eat with our ears too. The sound of the crunch, the sound of fried chicken or, or, or French fries going into hot oil. We eat with our ears too. And it's the same thing to do with the ambient music. It has a good deal to do with our enjoyment. So I encourage your listeners to please create your own playlist when you eat like Walt. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I I do what you do, too. I do these Disney-themed menus. I have a really, really old cookbook that has um, these old pot roast and beef stew recipes and that they don't serve anymore. And, yeah, I'll do those. And, and I do very similar things to you. I play Disney music and all that. It's a lot of fun. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post photos and with the hashtag Eat Like Walt. <laughs> Please do, yeah. And, automatic, and if there was anything with Eat Like Walt on Instagram, automatically goes to eatlikewalt.com, my website. And there's one fun thing. I mean, there is some very unique, some recipes that are there now. The Tahitian Terrace Polynesian ribs are there. And if you, there's a pineapple that'll be bouncing around. It's not just for animation. If you press that pineapple, there's video of what the Tahitian Terrace and the dinner show look like during Walt's uh-huh. era. And there's also the recipe for tea cakes. If we have the time, I'll tell you that story. I, that's but on one my of the list. More fun Oh, good. Okay. But one of the more fun features I have is called Play in the Park, and there's a vintage Sam McKenna Disneyland map. And you can press the pins, and you can see what was, what is at Disneyland now at a restaurant space or Dumbo space in the case of the Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship restaurant. Mm-hmm. So you can see both Walt's era and modern Disneyland, what things look like, like chicken plantation that's long gone. So Excellent. And and we'll, we'll start looking at the different realms because there are certain restaurants I want to talk a little about um, because some of our listeners probably don't even know they existed. And a couple of those we talk about all the time on the show. Um, but um, what I want to do is talk a little about uh, maybe about Walt himself and maybe dispel maybe assumptions people might make that you talk about in your book. Um, like, for instance, you know, Walt Disney was a movie studio mogul, um, which we sometimes forget about, that he was a, he was a very powerful person. But fo- so folks might assume, you know, Walt and Lillian ate out every night at fancy restaurants with other Hollywood studio executives, attended parties with Hollywood elite. But, you know, in your book, you write that they really didn't live that lifestyle of the rich and famous, did they? They, they didn't. And again, you know, I say... Because, you know, Ron Miller told me, his son-in-law, you know, mm-hmm. what it was like, what it was like going over to, you know, for Walt and Lily and with the grandkids. So one fun thing is that you see on TV trays, just like everybody else watching TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they didn't go out very much, Walt. Um, uh, as a sidebar, you, you talked about it at the beginning, but I asked the archivist and Kevin Kern is just, and Becky Klein and of uh, 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 I mean, I had so much help, but. Kevin, I said to Kevin, where did Walt eat when he wasn't eating at the lot? And so he went through every one of Walt's diaries at the studio from 1940 to 1966 and gave me a list, took him days of where Walt would eat. Because, of course, if he was going out to dinner, that would have been entered, too. And this was toward the end of writing the book. So I didn't have a lot of real estate, which means that when you turn in the manuscript, you can have as many words as you want. But as you get to the end of editing and the photographs and the images are in, then there's now only so much space to add or subtract. So, but I did get in 
all the restaurants that Walt frequented, including the ones you can still go to now, which is kind of fun. It's like a diver's drawing diners, drive-ins, and dives excursions to go where you mm-hmm. could eat like Walt, the restaurants in the Los Angeles, Los Angeles area. But back to your point, no, he didn't go out. He did like Chasen's. He did like Hernandez Hideaway. There were some kind of fancy restaurants that they occasionally went to. But Walt had a cook and a housekeeper named Thelma Pearl Howard, and she was affectionately named Fufu. And Fufu was given that nickname by Christopher, Walt Murray's first grandson, who couldn't pronounce Thelma, it became not Fufu, and it stuck. But Walt referred to her as his Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. And Ron Miller went on to describe to me in great detail how Fufu made everything from scratch. He cooked, you know, cleaned the house and did the laundry and had the most joyous disposition. You know, he was never, never cranky. And so, you know, apparently Lily made had a like the routine of things that she made again and again and again, like a lot of people do. Uh, mm-hmm. But so what Walt did is he made a list of the foods that he likes. And he said, here, Thelma, here's the foods I like to eat. And she put this list, two pages on her refrigerator. And that list is enshrined. And I mean that in the, in the most formal, proper way, enshrined at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And they allowed me for the first time ever to put it in a book to, pub- to, put, to publish it. And when you look at this list, you see so much about Walt Disney just in that, those two pieces of paper, I think, that explains him very well. One, you can see a signature loop. Loopy D. Lou's he was not a great speller, which doesn't mean anything. He didn't graduate high school. He wrote a lot, not a great speller. And he liked super simple food, spam and eggs, roast chicken, roast turkey, roast beef, always with gravy, often with potatoes. And I liked it that he had the caveat, only one vegetable. Yeah, and all the simple, you know, things are like, the, but the only one vegetable, that question comes up. Now I'm sitting with three of Walt's, two of Walt's granddaughters. I'm Tamara and Jenny and Ron in a different session. And Tam was Fufu's person. And so all the grandchildren, all of Walt, well, the ones that were alive, obviously, when, when Walt was alive, would play with Fufu in the kitchen and they, and they never took the Way and she could cook and and she could instruct the kids to help and she could draw paintings at the same time and it was just like was their family home was really in the kitchen with Fufu so but Tam said she started telling about Fufu's green beans and I said what she goes oh yeah that was Grandpa's with an M Grandpa's favorite vegetable was Fufu's green beans I'm like well you have to tell me all about them so she described them to me and I went back that recipe didn't exist. So I went back and worked in my kitchen several times, emailing Tam, does this sound like what it was like, until I finally got the recipe that Tam approved um, as being very close to the way Fufu made them. So I'm pretty proud of that recipe because it really is something, you know, completely original to eat like Walt. Yeah, and, and uh, you had a lovely story at the about when after, you know, Walt always gave, um, as a gift, gave Fufu, you know, like stock. In, in the company, and then at the end, though, when she retired, uh, when Diane Disney Miller, you know, um, Walt's oldest daughter, found out she, uh, you know, Fufu had retired and wasn't living in the greatest place, um, it, again, I think it just, well, why don't you tell that story? Because I, I just thought it was so, it just showed, the, I don't know, just showed the character of the Disney family. I agree completely. It shows the character of the Disney family. So Fufu was given stock by Walt every birthday and every Christmas, and she held on to all of those. She felt that selling stock was 
being disloyal to her boss. She did buy herself a modest home, and she did take care of her developmentally disabled home. So she worked with the family, and really, in the, the you know long after Walt passed away, she actually worked for 30 years for the family. And when she retired, they used to exchange Christmas cards, but at some point, the Christmas cards stopped coming, and it concerned Diane because she really looked forward to it. So she went to find Khufu, and when she finally located her, she was sort of in a shabby board kind of rest home shared with men and women and was not um, at all up to par. So Diane moved her to the motion picture fund home in Calabasas, which is in a private room looking at gardens and paid for it, sent her flowers every single Monday and visit her often until she passed away in 1994. And when she passed away, she was worth $9 million. Oh my goodness. And so the family, yeah, and the Disney family helped found the Thelma Pearl Howard Foundation with that money. They And so it goes to the things that, that Fufu cared about, which were children and the arts. And that foundation is still alive and well, thanks to the, the Disney family. That's wonderful. Just what a lovely story. And those are the stories people don't hear about Walt and his family, you know, except through yeah, you your know. book. <laughs> so well, thank now, you. Yeah. The other one that was really great, if I may, is was the story about one of their, um, a, a woman that worked, I'm going to be super quick about it, but at the studio, she had a horrible accident. Oh, and I uh, was Van Antwerp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I met Cecile because Ron Miller and, well, Diane and Ron had have Silverado Vineyards in Napa, and they're friends with this woman who is Cecile's daughter who works at the Swanson Vineyards. And they, so we met there, uh, Ron and Jenny and I at Swanson, and Cecile's daughter was working there, and she told the story of when she had the genetic accident, and she was rendered a quadriplegic. Now, this was in the 60s. She worked in the coral room. Interestingly, the coral room was Walt's private executive dining room. That wasn't built until the 50s. The studio opened in 1940. Walt waited in line at the commissary and paid for his lunch every day until this was opened in 56. So, Quorum's private. A long time to be waiting in line when you're Walt Disney and a mogul. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> Disneyland. Uh, so, Cecile was a waitress there, and when the accident happened, Walt met a doctor from Las Vegas to Van Nuys to be near her kids because she had young kids. You know, back in the day when you were quadriplegic, this was not a good, you know, prognosis. Walt then moved her after he took care of all of her medical expenses at the hospital in Van Nuys, made sure her children had tons of Christmas presents because she wasn't going to be out of the hospital during Christmas time. Then they had, he transferred her to a, a rehabilitation home where Walt paid for it. And when she finally went home as a quarter place that went to live on her life, he gave her the silver pass, which you never get unless you work 25 years. And anytime she wanted to go to Disneyland, all she had to do was call. He sent the limousine. He had people waiting with the wheelchairs and everything that she needed to transfer to the wheelchairs at the front of the park. And he gave her VIP guides anytime she wanted to go with her family. Wow. Well, it, he had arranged it. I mean, had passed yeah. away. I mean, and then they kept up that tradition after Walt passed away or Roy did. That's wonderful. I mean, just again, it just shows, you know, how much she cared about people, you know, Mm -hmm. because, yeah, she was just a waitress. But, you know, look what he did for her and her family, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But and we and you bring up a good point, because I wanted to talk about the studios. You know, the Hyperion studio didn't have any place for the studio 
personnel to eat at. So when Walt opened a Burbank studio, he made sure there were plenty of places at the studio for his um, for for all his employees to eat at, and and he and he even you mentioned in your talk he even subsidized the restaurants to make sure that the food not only was excellent quality but it was affordable. Yeah, I know. So far ahead of its time, his time, right? Nineteen. 19- and also you think about it, cars were, you know, not ubiquitous then and they've been expensive for people to drive on a lot more for food, et cetera, et cetera. But we all know it makes it more productive, makes people more productive to have it, you know, right there. But he did. He had the commissary, the studio commissary that is obviously still there. He had a small uh, shop of animation cafe in the animation building that was run by Mary Flanagan and Mary Flanagan at a high period sort of had a sundry shop. And everyone was just beloved. And so she ran this briefly, ran this animation cafe, kind of a limited sandwichy kind of menu that didn't last very long. There was also the penthouse uh, that was uh, for men only, had a full bar, had a full restaurant, had a gym, had a sauna, had a place to, you know, for massages. And then the women had the tea lounge, Ingrid Painters in their building had the tea lounge. And Women had tea time every afternoon, uh, sometimes with Morna Dunes and sometimes with tea cakes from Martino's Bakery. But mm-hmm. it's important to note that it was the tea lounge and not the coffee lounge because the work that they did was considered so so deft that they couldn't drink coffee or their hands would fade. You know, they really didn't drink any alcohol or anything. They had to be pretty strict because their hands, especially the inkers that were tracing, were careful. So tea time was a ritual and there was a big lounge with these, I have a photograph and eat like Walt with these big kind of comfortable couches. There was a small lunch counter that got closed pretty soon. I think, I think Roy was looking and seeing how expensive all these restaurants were and they, they shifted and changed pretty quickly from 1940, but they were still offering food and being completely about the employee's comfort always. And so the tea cakes came from Martina's bakery in Burbank, which opened in 1926. And the recipe for those tea cakes has been secret since 1926. And even though the, the restaurant, excuse me, the bakery has changed hands, it relatively new owners, I went in, you know, with my nicest Disney smile and attitude and said, I was right. Would you consider sharing the recipe? And I know it's secret, but you know, Disney people, I promise you, they will be flocking here like crazy to have the tea cakes, whether they, you know, there's only, there's all over the country. People want to eat like Walt. And they said, no, that very clearly. No. And that's the thing. And eat like Walt, if you don't live in Burbank or Los Angeles, you're not going to be able to try these tea cakes. So even though I was turned down, I was determined to be able to provide a recipe for my readers. And that's recipe number two of the, there's only three that I actually myself had to recreate. It took me 40 tries with my friend who's a professional baker who lives up in Truckee. I would buy the, buy the, you know, the tea cakes and freeze them and send them to her. And then we would talk on the phone and try to deconstruct the ingredients. And then I would go whenever I was in LA, I was often to work in the archives. I would walk in and the first time I said, I'm allergic to almonds. Is there almonds in this? <laughs> and I, so I was eliminating ingredients. And then it really, honestly, it tasted like there was some citrus. So one time I said, I'm allergic to lemon juice. And they looked at me like, there's no lemon juice in it, but you know, it was going to be a depression era recipe. So I mean, it would not be butter, it'd be margarine or lard. So to that end, I looked in the garbage all the time to see if I could see any kind of containers that it might be. And I, it really, I mean, I probably went into my, oh my you know, goodness. You went dumpster diving? Times. <laughs> I went dumpster diving. And, and I call it culinary CSI. But anyway, <laughs> um, 
I think we got a tea cake recipe that's close. I didn't want to be exact. I want to honor the original tea cake. And that for those that can make the pilgrimage to Martinez, I encourage you to have the original tea cake. But if you can't make the pilgrimage or you live anywhere where your listeners are, which is not just in Southern California, then you can make the tea cakes and eat like Walt was. Walt used to join him. He loved his inkers and painters. He was very respectful of them, which, by the way, Mindy Johnson told me he wrote the magnificent ink and paint animation history book. That in when in Walt's era, he was paying women three to four percent higher than the national average. How's that for another Walt Disney Insider tip? Yep, he had a lot yep. of respect for women, so higher than the average. He did, and he was higher. As we talked about many times on this show, he hired women in positions that no other studio at the time would. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, so back to the tea lounge, he would go up, you know, Betty Kimball, you know, Ward Kimball's wife tells a story about that. And he would come up and check the women and give them a chuck under the crin, see how they're doing, sit down and have tea and these tea cakes with them. So you don't need to buy the book. If you go to eatlikewalt.com, that's the other recipe that's provided is Martina or my tea cakes, tea lounge tea cakes recipe is on the website along with the Tahitian Terrace's pollination ribs. Now, I have to tell you, we have... We have a nice little community at the Walt Disney Family Museum of those of us who are charter members, and we always get together before the talks and chat and visit. Somebody made your tea cake recipe and brought them in to share. They are oh. delicious. <laughs> oh, so I just, thank you. And you know what? I didn't know about that charter member because I am a day one founding member. I was at the gala mm-hmm. the night it opened, and I have that founding day pin. I didn't know you were one, too. Yeah, no, I yeah. didn't come to more of the yeah. talks. I just, I'm on the road. Did you go to Jim Cora's talk? I did. I did. Oh, how, so. how was that? I love Jim. Oh, it was fantastic. You know, he has stories. And you know, he has that sort of sardonic, dry wit. And um, he, he was hilarious. You know, as he talked about his career. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he go talked ahead, about the head of being, you know, being at the, of the International Disney Parks, especially Tokyo Disneyland for its 35th anniversary. But uh, I knew Jim from when I worked at the studio and he, you know, he um, did my training program. Oh, there. my gosh. Well, yeah. I'm a big Jim Cora fan. You heard me say it there. He annoyed, Somebody kind of said, oh, well, Marcy's, I don't get a lot of snarky, but one person made a snarky comment, and I don't think they meant it, but that I was demeaning Jim by calling him my intern. Jim calls himself my intern. And uh, so, by <laughs> the way, he retired. I know you know, but for your listeners, he retired as a chairman of Disney International. He is a Disney legend. And he, you know, worked with Walt since 1957 at Disneyland, helped open Walt Disney World, was part of the team when, of all the places in the world, they could open the first international theme park in Tokyo was chosen. That was Jim that opened that and see and Paris. Mm-hmm. And so he is one of my really good friends. He's helped me immensely with the, with the book. Anyway, we got 10 Central, but I think he's an important <laughs> person in Disney history because how many of these people, guys, are still alive that knew Walt? I know. We, you know, we got to keep getting their stories because they're very precious. Absolutely, and well, Jim announced at the museum that he is writing a book. So yes, we're, he is. we're very excited, excited about Yay. that. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of years, apparently, it'll be out. Yeah, it now, takes a long time. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I'll bet you know. <laughs> now, um, <laughs> now speaking of food at the studio, there it, I was very surprised, and I learned this in your book and at your talk. The food that is there is a, a sandwich that is very closely associated with Disneyland, but 
it made its first appearance at the Walt Disney Studio in the 1940s. And it, it, did it. I, the Monte Cristo. Yeah, I was astonished by that. I so. was astonished too. I so I wrote about two of the most in Walt's era, the two most well-known chefs. There's Oscar that we talked about in India, Hideo Amaki. And Hideo was, as Kevin Rafferty, the famous Imagineer, called him large and in charge. And so <laughs> I interviewed people that knew Hideo, and Hideo was responsible for a lot of things, but including the Blue Bayou menu. And a lot of people you'll read in its accurate history. Hideo brought the Monte Cristo to the Blue Bayou, which, sidebar before we go back to the studio, so when the Blue Bayou opened, when it was 1967, obviously after Walt passed away, so the three restaurants that Walt championed for New Orleans Square didn't open until 1967. Walt, of course, did dedicate New Orleans Square, and that has one interesting fun fact. It's the only park in the history of Disneyland that ever opened without any attractions. So there was no attractions ready on that when they dedicated it, but the Blue Bayou restaurant was ready. However, Walt said he didn't want anybody eating in the restaurant because it would be a bad show without the pirates' boats floating by. So that's why the Blue Bayou didn't open then. And so when it did open in 1966, and long into the you know the history of Disneyland, people would run before Disney dining. I mean, you know, depending on who was listening out there, people would run from the gate mm-hmm. to Blue Bayou to get their name on the list first. It was a first come first come basis to get to eat at the Blue Bayou. So yes, that. it's heavily associated. Yeah, I don't, but good. I mean, I love that story. So now we have the Monte Cristo heavily associated with New Orleans Square and the Blue Bayou. That's what I know. And it's clearly on the menus that I'm looking at in the archives, and I've heard the Indian story. And then I go and I see, start researching the studio and see that menu from 1940. And it has the Monte Cristo. I was fascinated, so I did some research. And the Monte Cristo, although it's in New Orleans Square and it's associated with the South and New Orleans, has nothing to do with New Orleans. It's actually a Southern California sandwich that was essentially made to mimic the croque monsieur, but never, you know, so it is, was very popular in the forties going into mid-century America and Southern California. And it migrated down to Disneyland thanks to Hideo. So, yeah. And, uh, and, um, when in your book, if folks want to learn a little more about club 33 and how Hideo was associated with that, it's a really good read. And he was the only one that Walt allowed to have his nickname, on his cast member badge. That was a really interesting yeah. story, too. Well, there's some... Here's... The, oh, I, I'm only going to back up a little bit because there are some things, and I say this in all my talks, are... Some things are my theory or my idea or what I believe. Some things I cannot equivocally prove. In those cases, I have to say, why well, this I believe, um, et cetera, et cetera. Four, count them, four archivists vetted my book, including archivist emeritus Dave Smith. So it was like defending a dissertation for accuracy. So if it made it into the book and it stated its history, then the archives now are officially accepting it as Disneyland history, which makes me very proud. There are some things that they would say, like Becky Klein would say, "Mm, we're not sure. And that's one of them. No one is 100% sure that Walt never allowed anybody else. We think it's 99% sure to have a nickname. So the Indian story is, is that Walt was walking around when Indian was at the Plaza Inn, and he was walking around, and he heard people say, hey, Indian, and they said, hey, Indian, and he walked up to him. Now, Hideo was Japanese and Hawaiian, so Walt looks up, and he's looking at him and goes, why are they calling you Indian, you know? And he said, well, I used to play AAA baseball for the Cleveland Indians in Hawaii, 
And it stuck with me ever since I, you know, that name has just stuck with me ever since I was like a teenager. And he said, well, if everyone calls you that, why don't you put it on the name tag? And so we did. And so the legend, and I think it's probably true, is the only person that will ever allow to have a nickname on his badge. It's a great story. And he's just, and, and there's some good stories in the book about him. And you'd, men, you'd mentioned um, earlier about how, you know, one of the things that spurred you to, to write the book is that, you know, Walt's consideration for other people's comfort extended to Disneyland. And in your book, you have some examples of Disneyland's early advertising about the exceptional food experiences at the park. My favorite was the, the good eating land at Disneyland. So can you talk a little about that? Why was dining so important to Walt at Disneyland? Well, that was part of the, you know, that really made me think when I found this insert that you're talking about from the Independent Press Telegraph, where it was like maybe 20 pages. It really was an advertisement for Disneyland disguised as content, right? And if you look at the very bottom of it, it said Walt Disney Productions. But that is where Walt said, you know, welcome to the Kingdom Good Eating with the the where dining Disneyland style is an attraction unto itself. And he talks about good eating land. In fact, those were the first two names for the book. It was the Kingdom of Good Eating was the first name. Good Eating Line kind of went away after a while. Um, and I love the Kingdom of Good Eating, but at some point, my editor was saying, I don't know about that title. And I was using the hashtag, Eat Like Walt, in the, whenever I was at the parks. And, you know, and that was kind of catching on. And she said, well, what about Eat Like Walt? And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And I, we started talking about Toy Story. So in Toy Story... I know I go off on tangents, but you said I could. So when Toy Story uh, <laughs> was being, uh, when they, that was the working title. And they were like Buzz and Woody, Excellent Adventures, and, you know, uh, Buddies Go to Space, and, you know, uh, you know, Andy's Playroom, and Andy's Bedroom, and all these other titles. And they kept going on and on, and finally someone said, what's on the Toy Story? So it's sort of the same thing. You know, I would usually eat like Walt, you know, all the time, conversationally, anecdotally, and that became the title. Why do I think Walt cared so much about it? Well, you know, I, you know, food, same guy that put these great restaurants at the studio, even if just because he didn't like fancy food doesn't mean that he didn't get great enjoyment from eating. And so every restaurant at Disneyland when it opened in 1955 was leased out. Walt didn't have, you know, the, the wherewithal to run, as he called them, the feeding operation. So, for example, and that included the carts. That included the cafes and the sit-down restaurants like what the Plaza Inn, which was Swift Red Wagon Inn. And he wanted an elegant dining experience for families at a, to have a fancy and, you know, quote, a fancy meal at prices. And he had specifically with this idea that this was the type of restaurant you would sit in if you weren't running from place to place and just wanted to grab a hot dog. That's why Fantasyland, by the way, has just hot dogs and hamburger stands. Now there's some casual sit-down eateries. That was because families were cycling through the ride so fast. They weren't going to take the time to sit down. So you just had that food that was fast to grab and go. But the Swiss Red Wagon Inn was intended for people to have a nice dining experience. And Walt was very involved with that restaurant. By 1965, he was able to take the leases back from almost, but not all of the restaurants. And he and John Hanch redesigned it. And it became the um, it became the, the Plaza Inn that it is today. Right. Folks might not realize they've heard us talk about the... Um Red Wagon Inn, I think, and um, yeah, and that's the Plaza Inn, the original Plaza Inn. So, that's the Plaza uh, Inn, and that is why the corn dog cart is called the Little Red Wagon, 
right. no homage to Swift's Red Wagon Inn, and the Red Wagon was Swift's icon. And fun fact number, what are we at? Eight, nine, ten here. Uh, is that all core dogs are not equal at Disneyland. So I used to, you know, those lines are so long for the Red Wagon and usually, and I would mm-hmm. always think, oh, just go on over to the Stage Shore Cafe in Frontierland. They sell corn dogs too. And fun fact, 12, 11, 13, 14, is that there is a secret menu item at the Stage Shore Cafe. It's fried mozzarella sticks with marinara sauce. So, uh, but it, it's, it's not on the board. So I used to always say that, go over people, just get there, save your time until somebody pointed out to me that works at the park. No, not equal. The little red wagon does one thing and one thing only. It does corn dogs. Therefore, it has designated corn dog oil. At the Stage Door Cafe, they're also fine. The fish and chips, the chicken nuggets, the French fries, and the mozzarella sticks. So that is combing with oil. It, they don't taste identically. They do not taste the same. The, the fine, purest corn dog at Disneyland is found at the Little Red Wagon. Craig, you're our corn dog connoisseur of Disneyland. Would you, do you agree with that? Oh, 100%. No, it, <laughs> anytime people even suggest going over to Corn Dog Castle over in Disney California Adventure, oh. I just, <laughs> I, I, it disgusts me. It's you're supposed to eat them the at the little red wagon, and you get a nice bench mm-hmm. on Main Street, and you just sit back and you watch watch the day go away. Absolutely. What is the fine for getting the wrong corn dog? Though I wonder what that should be. They should just kick you out of the park if you show up to Corn Dog oh, Castle. You're... You should just have to be leave. You should have to leave. You're <laughs> harsh. Well, did you, did you know that the, one of the days that they had the most complaints at City Hall ever? was in the 90s when they claimed the corn dog recipe. So the corn dogs at Disneyland have been the same for a long, long time. Off-the-shelf batter, mix them with water, dip them, fry them, good. So in the 90s, an executive chef had, you know, this is the era of granola and honey and whatever. He thought he could, I shouldn't, I'm not dismissing him or her, I'm actually not sure gender, but this person wanted to upgrade the corn dog experience. So they developed this new recipe. And people were like, What? This is not the corn dog I grew up with. This is not the corn dog I had last week. I mean, they were born to City Hall with these complaints. They couldn't believe it. And it, I, as I understand it from Gary McClenney, who was then director of food and beverage, which is a, it, they they went back to the original corn dog within a day or two days, two days, oh very goodness. quickly, because people were so upset with the the corn dog change. We don't mess with corn dogs at Disneyland. No, you don't mess pretty much with anything at Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> well, not messing with Pirates of the Caribbean, but that's another show. Yeah, that's true. Uh, now, you, we were talking before the show. You confirmed a couple of things for me that I remember from my boyhood. That when t- I tell people, they look at me like, you know, I, I there's something crawling out, out of my ears that I started to wonder if I was imagining it. One is, is that, and, and now I, I know it's true because it's in your book that the carnation ice cream shops and the sandwiches, a lot of them were named after Disney attractions, Disneyland attractions, because you have, you've somewhere, you found a menu that listed the Peter Pan Sunday. And, and I remember in later years, there was a Matterhorn Sunday and all that. And there was a snack stand on Tom Sawyer Island for a time. Yes. And yes, and it was very simple. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, No, because I thought, okay, am I getting it confused with Aunt Polly's at Walt Disney World? But no, I knew I remembered it. And then... I think yours is the first book I've come across where it's mentioned. 
Well, you know, I didn't want to cover every eatery if I could, you know, and I, and, and I'm sure like anything else that was no book is ever finished. It just goes to print. Right. You know, and I was lucky enough. My book, Eat Like Walt, went into reprint in less than seven weeks. So it sold out pretty quickly. And when I reprint, I went back and I can tell you, but I went changed just a few minor things, very minor one things that I found out after it went to print. But with Tom Sawyer's Island, I found in my personal research, the archives didn't have it, the lease briefs for every single food, um, anything had to do with food or the Gibson greeting cards or the brochure or any, every shop that was there in 1955 um, and to 56. And so I kind of come for that really mining for the food, but it's a wealth of information. And that's where I found that that had, you know, had been there. And then of course, people that were there, like Jim Cora, like Mangas, uh, the people that I spoke with Marty Schoolman, that were so helpful to me confirmed, Oh yeah, that, you know, that was there. That's the other thing. There was one big giant body of water. It was, Jungle Cruise River and the Rivers of America was one giant flowing body of water. And there was a little footbridge near the Chicken Plantation, roughly positioned where the New Orleans Square train station is between that and the Haunted Mansion. But when they had when they were going to build New Orleans Square, they had to close the Chicken Plantation, which is quite the scenario. And then they, they changed it and they made two separate bodies of water. So there's a whole bunch of fun things like that that I don't remember uh, well, you know, it wasn't alive, doesn't matter, but it, 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 it's true that partly because I, some of it was known and I read about it and was, the archivist said that's accurate. Other things I read and I would ask Jim Cora, Ron Dominguez, Murray Square if it was accurate. Other things like when it came to family things, Ron Miller and the granddaughters. So I had a wealth of very personal sources. Again, everybody that knew Walt or seriously studied Walt, like the archivist, to make sure that it was true. Yeah, well, I was thrilled to see those things in the book, especially that menu. That was really a trip down memory lane for me. But um, yeah, the menus really all came from the archives. They were pretty good about saving menus. What they didn't do, well, the archives didn't exist, obviously, until Dave Smith founded them after Walt passed away. But nobody was saving recipes at Disneyland. Nobody was really saving, I mean, officially things. So a lot of the stuff, a lot of the affirmant things come from collectors, which is really interesting. And Mike Van Eaton at the gallery, he's doing some really interesting Disneyland auctions where people are selling. So, for instance, cast members took things home, right, from Malterra. Mm-hmm. And now they've kept people in Harry. We'd all see that coming up for auction stuff that's fascinating that I don't think anyone's ever seen because, you know, it's, it's, it's been in somebody's garage or grandmother's attic or something else. And there's so much history to learn about Disneyland. And that's my piece of the pie. There are so many wonderful historians, and my and I have so much respect for the people who have come long before me, and I I follow them all and read their books. I'm going to take my little slice of the pie, if you will, is going to is Disneyland and Walt's era, not just the food, and I can't tell you about the next books, but I promise you, it's specifically only Disneyland and Walt's era, and, and that's what I want to study. And you just and I so when we started the show, you said obviously you've done some a lot since the book was went to print would be April and was published was September 2017. Yes, because I'm curious. And as Walt famously said, you know, curious people get things done. And Mm -hmm. so I'm always going, you know, reading new books and going to auctions and talking with archivists and fellow historians and, um, and people like Jim Cora and uh, Ron Miller and the granddaughters. And I keep learning stuff that, you know, I hope I'll keep acquiring this information because to me, keeping Walt Disney alive in legacy is very important. Corporate Absolutely. things are corporate things, and it has to happen. But we must, as 
as fans of Walt do it. And, and it is, to some people, it's fading away. Then people will say to me, we're the millennials, and they don't know who Walt Disney is. So some people, I have been told, some cast members, young cast members, ask if Walt's real. You know, so uh, we, we as a group collectively can do it. And one of the ways we do it is by, for instance, uh, what you just said, it's Walt Disney World. If somebody says Disney World or Florida, I, I don't go harsh like Craig, but close. Like <laughs> <Because laughs> the corn dogs, mine is the, you know, the names. But I'll say there wouldn't be no Disney World without Walt. Please call it Walt Disney World. And mm-hmm. I did that in Orlando when I was promoting the book on a national, on a big TV station. And the woman was looking at me like, what, what's the big deal? And I'm like, it's Walt Disney World. I was at, and when I was at Walt Disney World and I was seeing all those signages on the freeway, saying Disney World, Disney World, Disney World. I finally took a photo, which was highly illegal, you know, while I was driving on the freeway. And I put Walt over Disney World and I put it on my Instagram and said, let's get this right, people. And then the other is that it's Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. It's the only Mm -hmm. attraction with Walt's name on it, Disneyland. It was his favorite attraction, according to his daughter, Diane. And when people say Tiki Room, I I start flinching. And I always say, but I said very nicely. Would you please, <laughs> my friends laugh at me, they know it's coming. Would you please refer to it? The first time in the conversation, the first time only is fine, then you will shorten it as Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. We had to keep Walt Disney in the Enchanted Tiki Room. So when I saw the annual passholders newsletter a few months ago and it said the Enchanted Tiki Room without Walt's name on it, I sent that to Jim Cora and I was furious. I said, what? And he wrote back to me, what? Is happening. Oh, I need Rollades. He was so upset, you know, because <laughs> he considers he's still a legacy keeper as well. And so let's all, all of us, all of your listeners, I know that we're, you know, obviously because Walt is the name of the show, we have to keep Walt's name and everything they had a part of when it comes Absolutely. to the parks. And that's Walt Disney World and Walt's Disney's and China Tiki Room. Right. And Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress for our um, Walt Disney World listeners. <laughs> right, absolutely. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. As I said, I'm a Disneyland historian, so I have an out on that. <laughs> That's right. See, we cover them all, but but you're 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 amongst friends here, Marcy. <laughs> oh, so good. we definitely good, want good. you back yeah. when you write that other book. You have to put us at the top of your list. So, I but, will absolutely and it'll be announced fairly soon, but you know, I'm very excited to be able to be back in this space and, and you know, I, I love I love the writing process because I feel like I am transported back, you know, between the music, especially if I'm at Disneyland, the subject matter, looking at the archival papers, which are, you know, obviously very special. It's a, it's a real honor to be able to be one of those that get to preserve Walt's legacy. And I mean that from with incredible sincerity, I will never take it for granted. I say thank you a hundred times a day that I get to do this. Thank you to Walt. Thank you to everybody that makes it happen. And because it's, I know I'm very lucky to be the one. I trust in the lucky slog that sold it, you know? (laughs) Now, another story that I'd never heard anywhere except when I read your book, Eat Like Walt, uh, you'd mentioned Tony Baxter, Disney legend and Imagineer, and how he, you know, he had his very first job when he was 17, I think at the, uh, you know, Carnation Ice Cream Shop. And then I hear, He's responsible for the increase in the price of an ice cream cone. And, you know, when I read this Isn't story, that, I thought, this sounds so much like Tony. <laughs> Can you share well, that story? You know, to, yeah, yeah, I would be happy to. First of all, I want to say that, you know, when that Marty Sklar had said, oh, I'll introduce you to Tony Baxter, I was so excited. And he sent an email uh, to Tony and copied me. And Tony wrote back, 
And I mean, it read like this. What is there possibly left to write about Walt Disney? (laughs) But determined. And I wrote back, well, it's through the lens of food. And then he said, okay, that's awesome. I have the you know the best untold food story about uh, Walt Disney that leads to one of the most iconic photographs with Walt Disney. I'll save that story for another time. But to answer your question, when I finally did have my interview with Tony, he took me to Club 33, which was so great. And he told me that he was an ice cream scooper, which is a pretty well-known story at Carnation Plaza Garden. And he, he was very proud of his scoops. He was 17 years old. And that's the only way, by the way, he could get to work at Disneyland was to work for an outside company because Disneyland only hired people 18 years or older, but the lessees like Carnation hired 17 year olds. And so that's how he got the job. But he was very proud of his scoops. He said, they're very sculptural. Sounds like a future imagineer. You know, mm-hmm. he said some of the cast members would make these blobs that would fall off the guest arms, you know, almost immediately. So there was some point as Tony told me, management's realizing, you know, I don't know if we figured out the price ratio on these cones. So they didn't know how many, they were curious, how many scoops do we get out of a gallon of ice cream? And so they asked Tony to do scooping because he did the perfect balls. And Tony, I can't remember the amount now, but I think it was 60 balls, let's say, for the entire gallon. Well, they realized that 60 balls and the amount that they were charging, they were losing money on the cones. <laughs> Because they weren't charging enough, so they went and they changed the price because Tony Baxter's scooping skill. Mm-hmm. They raised it, the price because of Tony <laughs> Baxter's. Yeah, but see, because he, I, I've, I've only talked to him a few times, but he just it's, seems so precise that I thought, okay, this sounds like him, you know, being very careful about yeah. the ice cream scoops and, and very diligent, you know, and, and, we might and say concerned he's about. Precise. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Go ahead. And very concerned about the you know the guest experience that everybody got the perfect scoop, you know. <laughs> well, he was only 17 and he was thinking that way, but of course he went yeah. to Disneyland, he lived in the neighborhood, he biked there with the express purpose of getting a job working for Walt Disney, you know. Mm-hmm. And when Walt finally came up to Tony Baxter's window, he was told that everyone's like all hands on deck, all hands on deck, Walt's in the park. All hands on deck, man your stations, man your stations, open every single window. All you know, that was the type of thing that was being said when Walt was in the park, at least in Tony's experience. So Tony went up to his window and Walt came up and he, you know, he said, you know, Walt said, Hey, how's your day? And he wanted he had a pitch ready, he wanted to say how much Walt did nothing could come out. He was just he was dumbfounded. He just said, Very well, sir, or something like that, you know. Um, and of course famously went on to and he worked with Oscar. Oscar was Tony's mm-hmm. that was like another story when I'm when I'm writing a book about essentially through the lens of food, there are too many to, to mention, but that would be one. And then, then Tony says, yeah, and Oscar was my lead. I'm like, what? Yeah, Oscar, we work together and, and they love each other. And so it was just a really fun tie-in to know that in Tony's early career, and Oscar likes to say that he was the one that encouraged Tony to do more than work in food service at Disneyland. And he was one of the people that helped Tony get the interview that led to his becoming an Imagineer. Yeah, I know he was very encouraging of Tony, to especially because I think yeah. Tony showed him, I think his concept for the Mary Poppins um, right. ride. Yeah, and he right, said, "Oh, exactly. you should show it." Yeah, so and yeah. so it's all good. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's another character again. When I tell people, they are dumbfounded that this person worked at Disneyland. I, I remember when I told Craig, even he was stunned. And this is somebody we all know. We might even have her in our kitchen right at this very moment. 
Aunt Jemima worked in Frontierland. And you tell her, you tell her whole origin story in your book, Eat Like Walt. <laughs> well, yeah, of so, course, Aunt Jemima was a fictional character. But yes, yes, you yes. Know, they always had women. And to be very sensitive, but be very culturally sensitive, this was mid-century America. Mm-hmm. But there was a black woman who was playing the Aunt Jemima character. There was different ones that rotated. There's the ones that actually did the public appearances, you know, and then, and then, but if you would go to the restaurant anytime, someone would be in the kitchen singing and making pancakes. And it was just, again, part of the theme. You were in Aunt Jemima's kitchen. And so, you know, and you look at those, some of those, you know, Frontierland, Adventureland, you know, Frontierland was filled with restaurants, right? Adventureland had a few, but Frontierland really was the one. So this one, you know, Aunt Jemima's now parked was where Riverbell uh, mm-hmm. was. So technically, obviously, Frontierland. And, I think one of the, again one of the things that came through research I did I didn't know about was the pancake races and the pancake races were brought to the park uh, because they didn't have money for pageants and parades and there were these pancake races that were happening in liberal Kansas that was based on a tradition long standing tradition in England where women would run 400 feet and fling these pancakes over essentially a ribbon the height of the volleyball net and the first one to the finish line won. And so they came up, I think it was Eddie Mack came up with the idea of bringing them to Disneyland. And of course, because Aunt Jemima was one of the lessees, it made sense to have the pancake races. And Aunt Jemima, you can see one of the images of the book of these women, you know, fl- flinging their pancakes as they <laughs> navigate the, the, the tracks, you know, on Main Street USA. And there's Aunt Jemima peeking out from behind because, you know, she was the, one of the corporate sponsors, she and her restaurant and her company for the Disneyland pancake races. Right. And I want you, those to come back. If I was the boss at Disneyland, I'd bring them back. I could see you in your apron when, you know, you're dressed in pearls running down with oh, a skillet. Oh, you know what? I would totally, you know what? I do Spartan yeah. races. I would think a pancake race would be super fun. I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, and it, folks if, folks who want, want to watch the recording of the opening day you know, televised ceremonies for Disneyland, there is a, a, there is a very brief glimpse of Aunt Jemima. Um, in Frontierland oh, cool. in there. So. Oh, I love that. Yeah. There's another little artifact that I think probably everybody walks by. You know, in your book, you tell many stories about how coffee was very important to Walt. He had his rituals in his office about coffee and things like that. But, you know, but um, so he wanted to make sure there was a coffee house in the new New Orleans Square. And, you know, what now is Cafe Orleans was originally the Creole Cafe. And there is a beautiful um, espresso machine that um, Walt put in there. Uh, do, do you know, can you tell us a little about the story of that? You know, the espresso machine, that's an excellent example of something that came to me after the book went to print. I knew from the my research in the archives that Walt definitely wanted a New Orleans style coffee house with really strong coffee. Of course, every all the treats were going to be themed to New Orleans, and I think it was Mark Davis who was coming up with a lot of the potential names for the restaurant. I mean, you know, these these artists and imaginers, the highest level, were involved, obviously, at Disneyland with the smallest of details, like what to name a coffee shop, right? But yes, he did purchase, I believe, an Italian espresso machine to ensure, of course, it wasn't trickery coffee, which is interesting. Trickery would have been more authentic, but, mm-hmm. you know, Italian coffee is impossible to beat. And yes, Walt loved coffee. He insisted that it stayed 10 cents always. And when he was alive and, the, you know, they honored that at Disneyland, they didn't raise the price of coffee at Disneyland for a long time after Walt passed away. 
I think when it when Roy finally said uh, we're losing too much money on coffee, so he raised the price. Yeah, somebody, <laughs> yeah, or, or somebody or somebody poured it. Well, more likely that would have been Card Walker. Yeah. When it comes to Disneyland, <laughs> Card. Yeah, card, it was probably could have been Card, but you know the so many of these legacy keepers of Waltz, you know, when he passed away, as I understand it, they people, you know, they knew what Walt wanted, and they they lit. He had trained them. They had so much respect for him that they were able to keep his wishes going long after he passed away. And I met a woman the other day who actually uh, made the deal with one of the attorneys when Brett Law, Walter Scott Backwards, where Walt, I know you guys know where Walt had his private holdings and also things like a train at Disneyland. So if you were worked on a train, you were paid by Walt Disney, not by Disneyland. But she was saying that when the sale was happening and she was one of the attorneys representing the Disney family, that all the people on the rent law side would say, what would Walt think? They were, they were still saying that, you know, like, I wonder what Walt would think about everything. They were still referring back to, they wanted to do what they thought Walt would want. And of course, Walt knew that things would change. They weren't saying staying stuck in mid-century America. They were just thinking logically, empathetically, morally, principally like Walt would when they were making these big decisions long after he had passed away. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, we've only just touched the surface, actually, of what's in your book. People might think, you know, our listeners think after an hour, we've heard it all. There is so much more. I, I haven't even gone through all my questions I was hoping to ask, Marcy. So you, you just <laughs> well, you have to come back. So you, We'd yeah. love to have you back because there's so much more. Like you, one of the things I hear about, you know, from old timers like me, and you touched on it. People love those tuna burgers from the Chicken of the Sea pirate ship. And um, I miss the pirate ship, not the tuna burgers. But the nice thing is people will be delighted <laughs> to know. I, I think it was too many chicken uh, uh, tuna noodle casseroles growing up as you know Roman Catholic, you know, on those Fridays um, when we couldn't Fridays, eat. Yeah. I, I couldn't take it anymore. And but um, you tell the whole you tell the story of the ship and how it was constructed. But you provide the tuna burger recipe for people that miss those tuna burgers, and I hear about it all the time. Um, about those tuna burgers and um, you know the automat that might was going to go into Tomorrowland and and there's so many more stories in here so um, you know buy the book you know connecting uh, eat, eat, eat like Walt and so Marcy after our listeners read the book what do you hope they come away with after reading Eat Like Walt well, I hope they come away with a different appreciation of Disneyland because you can look around and you can see what you can imagine what Walt would have seen when he was walking through the park. I you see Disneyland, I hope, through Walt in his eyes. And also, as I touched upon and equally or more, that you 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 learn about Walt as a human being, as the everyday man, as the daddy as the person that wanted and to provide this experience for people all over the world to come to Disneyland. Walt would never imagine. I mean, he knew about Walt Disney World. Imagine what he would think about these parks worldwide. But so that you get to know Walt as a human being, you get to walk the park differently and see it as Walt might have seen it and understand his passion from a different perspective about his favorite place, our favorite place, the happiest place on earth. Absolutely. Now, if our listeners would like to learn more about Eat Like Walt and your food and wine adventures, and where can they follow you on social media? 
Well, you can go to eatlikewalt.com because that has some, a lot of fun features like we talked about, the recipes and the play in the park feature. I am on Instagram two ways. I'm on Instagram, Eat Like Walt, and that's just about the book and Walt. And then I have food, wine, and Marcy with Mercy with a Y. And those are all my adventures. I live in Sonoma County. I love to eat and I do that. And I'm also on Twitter, food, wine, Marcy. A couple of fun things. I will be at Walt's Barn in, uh, on July 15th. The book will be there. If your listeners have not been to Walt's Barn, that's something else that Diane Disney Miller saved. It, Walt's Barn is considered the birthplace of Imagineering. It was the red barn that was behind his house in Holmley Hills. It's where he built his miniatures. It's where he talked about Disneyland and drew things. It's also where he switched his trains at his private care with Pacific Railroad. And when that Holmby Hills house sold, Diane made sure that barn was saved and she relocated to Griffith Park in Burbank, California. And there is a foundation, the Carolwood Foundation, that preserves it. But it's only open one Sunday a month. And when it is, you get to see Walt's Combine. You get to see Ollie North, Ollie's train station. So mm-hmm. it's the last of the nine old men. Unfortunately, Ward Kimball is gone now, but Ollie North, Ollie's there. And then, you know, you there's inside this red barn is all sorts of tremendous memorabilia. So I'll be there on July 15th. So you're in the Los Angeles area. I'd love to see you there. That would be wonderful. And what I always I kept saying, I can't believe I kept saying Ollie North. Why did you let me say Ollie North? Well, I, I don't like That's to the correct end of the interview. Our, our listeners. Oh, correct. <laughs> I mean, our, our, our guests. Ollie Johnson. That's so <laughs> funny. It's, you know, your brain is in words all day writing and talking radio also and talking. And it took like three times. So they're like, North, our listeners, no. Ollie Johnson, yeah. I, I, our listeners anyway. know who you meant, though. But w- one All of the right, things okay. I tell folks when they go there, this Walt's Barn. I mean, you will go and and you know that Walt touched those workbenches. Yes. The Walt washed his hands at that sink. I mean, if you really want to connect with Walt, I mean, that was his happy place. He loved working and fiddling around and make doing all kinds of things in that barn in at, behind his house. So, uh, yeah. you know, if you have not gone there, that is just such a special place. You know. Um, Agreed, very special. Yeah, yeah. And oh, and I do follow Marcy on social media. If you are the least bit hungry and you start looking at Marcy's <laughs> oh, no. postings, you are going to want to eat. Oh no. <laughs> Oh, no. That's good, I think. It is. You post the most delicious-looking foods. And and most importantly, where can our listeners purchase um, Eat Like Walt? Well, thank you for asking. At Disneyland, which I love. But, uh, yes, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And then, you know, your independent bookstores – I have always make a plug to support them. You know, independent bookstores are so important. Of course, that would require patience because they will order it for you. Uh, but if you go to eatlikewalt.com, there's a link directly to the um, to Amazon. And that's, the, you know, quite frankly, that's the, the most economical also. Um, but, you know, I've, I appreciate everybody that goes to the independent bookstores and supports them because that extra 8 to $10 goes a long way in keeping reading alive in our communities. Absolutely. Right. And, and and keeping your Main Street USA open in, in your town. Right. Too. Right. <laughs> so, Absolutely. And, That's a great and, way to end it. That's awesome. Yeah. And and we will have Craig will put up links to all these sites that um, Marcy mentioned in our show notes. 
so you can so you you'll have quick and easy way to um connect with Marcy there. Um, Marcy, thank you so much for joining us on Connecting as Well. This was absolutely a delight. Um, you know, I enjoyed listening to you and meeting you at the Walt Disney Family Museum and that same exuberance and energy and passion that you showed there, I think really comes through for our listeners. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Craig. uh, As I said, it's a complete honor to be one of the the people that gets to preserve Walt's legacy and to share that with you guys and your listeners. It just made my day. So wish you all the best, and I hope to see you at Walt's Barn, and I'll be back on the show soon to tell you about the next book. Wonderful. And and share more stories about Walt. (laughs) (laughs) I hope. I'm collecting them. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thank you. Well, you know, Craig, that I should have probably had dinner before we did that interview <laughs> because I am really hungry. Um, isn't uh, I, I don't know? I I just I could just listen to Marcy all day, and uh, just at the Walt Disney Family Museum, you know, she came across with such passion and enthusiasm for Walt Disney, his legacy, uh, you know, Disneyland. And, and, you know, and and I think that came through on the show. It definitely comes through in her book, Eat Like Walt. Oh, absolutely. This is, uh, you know, we've we've had a lot of great interviews on this show since we've been doing it. But this was uh, personally one of my favorite ones. Uh, Marcy was just amazing. And I, I think the best part about it is that, uh, again, as of the time we're recording this, I'm lucky enough that now I can just go walk right into Disneyland Park and and start eating eating my night away, and I well, plan on you, doing that. <laughs> yeah, and you can buy the book. Yeah, no, I've I've been. It was funny because I, you know, I I've seen it out in Walt Disney World all the time, but. Uh, knowing today that we were we were going to be recording this with Marcy, it, it was just it was neat to be walking around all day and seeing the book all throughout all the all the different big bookstores in Disneyland and being like, yeah, we're going to be talking to Marcy tonight. Pretty cool. And I, I didn't get into it on the show, but it has one of my favorite photos on the cover. Yeah. Of course, that's that's one of the last photos taken of Walt and Mickey together at Disneyland, and and Craig, I'm just going to tell you, look at um, the photo on the chapter about Tomorrowland. It's going to look very familiar to you and those of us who follow the um, follow us on Twitter at Connecting Walt. <laughs> so because it's our other uh, favorite photo, yeah, as well. Uh, anyway, but yeah, just uh, the way that uh, the way that Marcy tells told the stories on the show is also a, a lot of ways uh, the way she writes about them in her book, with um, just that 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 level of of enthusiasm and and respect, you yeah. know, for for the topic. <laughs> Well, here we are. We're, can't, we can't wrap up the show until we have this day in Disney History Quiz. This week, it is for the week of May 13th. And, of course, we have our champion, Craig Williams, here in the, in the yep. corner of um, 
of, of the center of Orlando and then off in the southern wilds of California to challenge him we have our very own Nancy Johnson from the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. Nancy, welcome back. Thank you. This so, time, this time, Mr. Williams. This is it. You feel it? <laughs> okay. I'm okay. I, I don't know. I don't know. He's he's good. He's good. It's all it's good. about. It's just the order that the questions fall in. Mm-hmm. He's youthful and he has more energy. Uh, hey, that's it. It's nine thirty on a- my time right now, not six thirty. So, hey man, when you hit fifty, talk to me. <laughs> Well, you know, what Craig does do, you know, sprints to warm up. Yeah, right. You know, before we get going here. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's do this thing. All right. Just as a reminder for uh, for um, folks, especially those of you who are playing at home, the rules are: if you choose not to hear the multiple choice options and you get the answer correct, you will receive three points. If you choose to hear the multiple choice answers, you will receive two points. If you ask for one incorrect answer to be removed and get it correct, you will receive one point. Or if your opponent gets the question wrong and you answer it correctly, you will receive one point. And remember, folks at home, no Googling, yahooing, or binging. Okay. I know everyone here knows the knows the rules. Nancy, do, would you like to receive the question or pass it on? I am going to follow the tradition I have picked <clears throat> in the last two attempts and I am going to re- receive the question. All right. This is for May 13th. Good good luck everyone. Okay. <clears throat> this famous singer-songwriter visits Disneyland for the very first time on May 13, 1971, during the performer's second U.S. tour. This person will perform at the neighboring Anaheim Convention Center the following day. Who is it? You said 1972. I was six. 1971. Oh, I was five, so okay. I'm going to have to go with the. I'm going to have to go with the choices. <clears throat> okay, is it A. Jethro Tull, B. Elton John, C. Frank Zappa, or D. Alice Cooper? So, so who is five-year-old Nancy Johnson listening to out of these? Okay, it's going to probably have to be Elton John because you're saying it's a U.S. visit. Um, so if I said Frank's- it was a U.S. tour. U.S. tour, yep, and because Frank Zappa is from California and Alice Cooper is from the U.S., I'm pretty sure, I'm going to go with Elton John. All right. Of course, you know, it means that maybe they only went across the United States once or twice, even though they lived here. However, you were correct in your logic. The answer is B, Elton John. So, Nancy, there you go for two points right out of the gate. Okay, and so we know that uh, who who Nancy was listening to, you know, Crocodile Rock and all that when she was five years old. Oh, come on, who doesn't love a a good (laughs) Alice Cooper tune? (laughs) Yes. And Jethro Tull, because I was a big fan of the electric flute in high school. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All righty. Okay, Craig, it's your turn to see if you can 
get on the boards here. Okay, on May 14, 2010, Space Shuttle Atlantis launches on its final planned mission to deliver an integrated cargo carrier and a Russian-built mini-research module to the International Space Station. Two special Disney items are on board the spacecraft. What are they? Um, well, I, I think I know one, but I'm not... And if you would have just said one, I would have did the guess right away. But uh, since I only know one, I need multiple choice. All right. Is it A, a Buzz Lightyear and a little green alien figure from the Pixar film Toy Story? B, two Vinylmation figures? C, Mickey Mouse and Duffy Bear plush figures dressed in Disneyland's 55th anniversary costumes? D. Tron Legacy leather ball caps worn by the mission commander and the shuttle pilot during the mission. Okay, well, um, but see, now I'm also doing the second guessing myself because I knew at one point in time they took Buzz Lightyear up into okay. space. And so that's what I was initially jumping to. And I don't know. I, I could see Tron hats too. The other two kind of sound out of the realm, but since I know at one point in time they took up a Buzz Lightyear doll, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump and say that it was A. Okay, final answer? Yeah. Okay, that is incorrect. Buzz did go up, but not on that particular mission. Nancy So did who flew on Atlantis? Was it two Vinylmation figures, Mickey Mouse and Duffy Bear, dressed in the Disneyland 55th anniversary finery, or Tron Legacy ball caps worn by the mission commander and the shuttle pilot? And did you say a year on that one? Just to It's finish? 2010, May 14th, 2010. I'm going to go with the Tron Legacy ball hats. Okay, that is incorrect. It was Duffy, really? STS-132 Commander Ken Ham has requested that two very special and quite small guests join the six-person crew on Atlantis' 32nd flight. Two Disney three-inch tall Vinylmation figures. The mission's space-inspired figure from the Park Series number three and a create-your-own-blank figure that the astronauts have decorated are both aboard Atlantis. Upon their return, they will be put on display in the special VIV, very important Vinylmation case, at D Street at Downtown Disney West Side at Walt Disney World. Well, it's not there anymore, so <laughs> break. I know, I know. Who would have thunk it, huh? <laughs> you know, it makes sense because that's the easiest thing to take. It's one of the easiest uh, things for them to carry. Mm-hmm. I know. Those in the bar, those in the the ball caps were both the most portable things, so it was hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. So, okay, so I think now, Nancy, we're to you again, right? Okay, yes. Okay. All right. May 15th. The Walt Disney Mickey Mouse short, The Cactus Kid, directed by Walt Disney, is released. Riding on 
Riding in on Horace, Vicky vi- <laughs> Mickey visits a western town but fails to impress a Mexican mini with his mischievous antics. He later succeeds in saving her from the dastardly peg-leg Pedro. What is noteworthy about this Mickey Mouse cartoon short? It's not color. It's not color. Um, I'm gonna have to go with the with the uh, choices. Okay. Let's see here. Okay, is it A? It is the first Mickey Mouse short to feature Horace Horse Collar in a non-speaking role. B. Mickey and Minnie sing their first duet. C. It is the last Mickey Mouse short to be animated by uh, Iwerks. Or D. It is the final Mickey Mouse cartoon short to be distributed by Columbia Pictures. Ooh. I want to say, A, it's the first one where Horace is actually a horse as opposed to... Because when you said he comes riding in on Horace, that's that was immediately struck me as very odd. So I'm going to go with A. Okay. Final answer? Yeah, as much hey, that, as I'm nervous. That is incorrect. Yeah. Craig, over to you. What it what is noteworthy about this 1930 Mickey Mouse short, The Cactus Kid? Did Mickey and Mouse sing their first duet? It is the last Mickey Mouse short to be animated by Ub Iwerks, or it is the final Mickey Mouse cartoon short to be distributed by Columbia Pictures. I also am, I, I'd be taking a shot in the dark on this one. In my head, it's between Ub Iwerks and uh, singing the, the first duet. So, I'll go with the duet. I'll go with B. You know, that would be understandable because um, they, the, the movie poster says they sing, they dance, you know, they talk, they sing, they dance. But it actually, it's, it is the last Mickey Mouse short to be animated by Ub Iwerks. Ub Iwerks. Who, I had eliminated... Yeah, I'm sorry, he, he, Michael. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, I had eliminated the, the singing because, you know, they would have that one more prominently featured in the little... in the movie theater here at Disneyland. Mm-hmm. If it was... If it there was a musical number, you would see that musical number being played. Yeah. So. But, um, yeah, Ub left um, weeks before... A few weeks before, he had left the Walt Disney Studio to start an animation studio under his own name. He, he would return, though, in just a couple of years. So, okay. All righty. So, Craig, over to you. So, um, so far, it's, it's Nancy's in the lead with two points. Um, so, May 16th, this Disneyland performance group appeared on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson on May 16th, 1974, and would replace the show's regular band for three weeks. What group is it? I have to go with multiple choice <laughs> i know nancy it, knows but i know okay is it a 
Okay. Is it A, the Dapper Dance, B, the Firehouse 5 plus 2, C, the Disneyland Band, or D, the Royal Street Bachelors? I would go with uh, Firehouse 5 plus 2, since I know they played gigs outside Mm -hmm. of Disneyland, so (laughs) I'll go with that. The, they and you're right. They did not on May sixteenth, nineteen seventy four. However, huh. Nancy, would you like to take a stab at this one? I'm going to go with the Royal Street Bachelors, and I'm wrong. So it might be the <laughs> Disneyland band. <laughs> the answer is the Disneyland Barbershop Linda. Harmony Group, the Dapper Dans, appear <gasps> on the really? Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, tenor John Sherburn. Lead Creighton Hogan and baritone Jerry Siggins and bass Doug Scott will be guests on The Tonight Show for the next three weeks as the show's regular band are withholding their services as per their membership in Local 47 of the American Federation of Musicians. The previous contract had expired on April 30th, which led to an impasse with the TV networks, resulting in a work stoppage. Because the Dapper Dance performed a cappella and without their organ chimes, they are not in violation of the union's action. Okay. <laughs> and I thought for sure that they were out of the running because they were a vocal group and not a band. Exactly. Isn't that ironic? So, and not knowing about such a silly thing as a union strike as a child. <laughs> I know. I know. Isn't that ironic? I so. know. Okay. Well, it makes perfect sense. Okay, Craig, here you go. This is closer to your neck of the woods. This is, isn't this Nancy's? Is it Nancy's? Oh, you're right. It is Nancy's. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, Nancy, actually, it's not far from where you grew up, really. Okay. Um, The Field Museum in Chicago unveils Sue, the largest, most complete, and best preserved Tyrannosaurus Rex fossil yet discovered on May 17th, 2000. What is its Disney connection? Sue, I I totally know this one. I'm going for the Big Bang. Okay. Sue is actually replicated in the Disney parks. And she was, and and they basically um, had a team of paleontologists um, in there um, excavating the fossils in a little tent in during the opening of Animal Kingdom. So, because we went and we saw them working on the skull, which was in the block, um, mm-hmm. and they would sh- they would have little diagrams as to what part they were going to work on next and and stuff like that. And then it was cast, and the cast replicas. Uh, is there with along with um, the other cast replicas of from the Field Museum because they partnered with McDonald's mm-hmm. on uh, buying that yep. with the Field Museum. Yep, you are absolutely right. A replica of Sue stands in Disney's Animal Kingdom. You can see Sue during your next visit to the Dino Institute in Dinoland, USA. And there's a little bit of trivia. The dinosaur is named after Sue Hendrickson, an American paleontologist, who, along with her team in August 1990, discovered the bones of this huge Tyrannosaurus Rex in South Dakota. It is one of the most complete... I think it is the most complete Tyrannosaurus Rex mm-hmm. skeleton that was found. Yeah. yeah. It's huge, too. So yeah. I've, I've, I've seen it. That part is... Big girl. I, I knew this one because my sister used to 
did, she did the professional internship at all like the fun spot learning stations around Animal Kingdom before they became <laughs> wilderness explorers, and Sue was part of her spiel. So, oh, very cool. Yeah, so anyway, hey, it's not my question though. So no. <laughs> okay, well, it's five to zero, but Craig, you still have a chance to to get in on the action here. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise, Come this on, is Craigie. the first time I've never been on the board at all. Yeah. Wouldn't be my first loss. It, well, this won't be my first loss, but uh, it will. It, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, the no, first time not scoring. Yes. Points. <laughs> all right. Here you go, Craig. This illustration and production designer was born on March 18, 1910. She would eventually become one of the first women to work in the male-dominated field of motion picture design and in WED Enterprises as an Imagineer. Who is she? Um, I feel like it's probably two on the nose to just say Mary Blair but that's yeah uh, yeah I mean at this point even if you <clears throat> list two other women probably besides with Alice Davis being the fourth in there and I know I know she's not a hundred and however old so that would be rolled out right away but yeah i'll just go mary blair because i don't know okay okay that that is incorrect i'm sorry that you're downshotted nancy can you stomp on him a little more do you want to try for this one now now since you're stealing this one i can give you the options okay mm. the the first one was mary blair so we right. she's out of the running okay is it b dorothea holt redmond C. Harriet Burns or D. Leota Toombs Thomas. C. And I, I was, I was going back and forth between Leo, um, Leota or um, or Dorothea, but I want to say illustration and production designer. Yeah, one of the first women to work. In a male-dominated field of motion picture design, and in Wed Enterprises as an Imagineer. I'm gonna. My gut said. My gut said Leota. Uh, that was my first gut because you know we always think of her and then her daughter went into everything and Dorothy okay I'm just gonna go I'm just gonna go with Leota and and go from there okay final answer final answer I'm I'm scrunching my face up (laughs) imagine imagineer Dorothea Holt Redman is born Dorothea Holt in Los Angeles California (gasps) (laughs) an illustrator and production designer she was hired in the 1960s by walt disney to design a private apartment in disneyland's new orleans square as well as the interior and exterior settings of many restaurants and shops she later designed fantasyland at walt disney world in florida 
as well as portions of Main Street and the mosaic murals in the Archway Cinderella Castle that were implemented there and in Tokyo Disneyland. One of the first women to work in the male-dominated field of motion picture production design, her credits include Gone with the Wind, The Best Mm -hmm. Years of Our Lives, The Ten Commandments, and seven Alfred Hitchcock productions. I should have... I wasn't even thinking about outside of the Disney realm on that. No, Mm -hmm. and I knew Dorothea Redmond did Gone with the Wind and the Hitchcock, because my brother studied Hitchcock in Mm -hmm. in high school. So She was a remarkable woman. Oh, yeah, she was. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) Okay, all right, and... um, Let's My see, who are we at? Today. <laughs> uh, okay, and Nancy, I think this one's yours. Okay. Okay. Okay, May 19th. Well, you know what? We are going to take a flight once again on board the Space Shuttle Atlantis. All right. This, this time, it's launching for a May 19th, 2000 mission for 10 days. What Disney cargo does the shuttle have on board? Are you there? <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm trying to think. My brain is going to Oh so... Okay, give me the options. Alright, is it A an assortment of Disney films for the astronauts to enjoy during their downtime, including Fantasia two thousand, Mission to Mars, and Dinosaur, which was leased to theaters the same day as the launch? B, a Mickey Mouse plush wearing a Disneyland 45th anniversary costume. C, a speed, I'm sorry, a seed experiment from the Land Pavilion at Epcot. Or D, plans for Walt Disney World's newest attraction, Mission Space at Epcot. You know what? My brain, when I was I was trying to decide whether to go for the options or not, my brain was was thinking it was some kind of a hydroponics or or something um, from the land. So I'm gonna incorrectly probably go with my brain and say the seed experiment for Epcot. It's either that or the other one. Okay, final Which answer. Find yeah, final uh, final answer. Seed experiment. All right. You know, they have done that on some of the shuttle missions, not, not on this, this particular one. one. <laughs> so, okay. So, okay, Craig, here's your opportunity. Yeah, what was <laughs> to, the, to the first one again? I, I okay. remember the other two. It's but. obvious now. Okay. So. And as, an assortment of Disney films for the astronauts to enjoy during their downtime, including Fantasia 2000, Mission to Mars, and Dinosaur, which was released to theaters the same day as the launch. Okay, so Nancy says it's obvious now, but at the same time, too, Mission Space opened up in 2003, and if it was plans, all they have to do is is fold paper, which or, or roll it up in a poster tube, um, uh, and I don't think it's the plushes. I feel like that's just a waste. And the only thing I'm, that's screwing me up about the first one is I'm having false memories. I obviously know Fantasia 2000 and um, and Dinosaur were out, but 
I could have swore that Mission to Mars came out later. Um, I didn't think it was 2000. That seems early, but... Um, gosh. Yeah, I... I don't think it's the mission space plan, though, because it, it, I mean, unless HP had something to do with it too, I feel like HP would want the credit since they sponsored that attraction. So I'll, even though I don't think Mission to Mars was out yet, I'll go with the movies. Okay, and you know, I bet they would have enjoyed those, but. The answer is D. Plans for Disney's newest kidding? attraction, Mission See? Space. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> and you're right. It was scheduled to be completed in 2003 or 2004. They are launched into space aboard Atlantis to NASA's International Space Station on sh- the shuttle flight STS-101. The crew is made up of six American astronauts and one Russian cosmonaut. Nancy, you have done what we thought was the undoable. (laughs) So this one is the score is five to zero. So that was a rough one. My first goose egg, (laughs) but you know what? It's I can't. I can only blame myself, especially when I did terrible logic reasoning on the last one. (laughs) Yeah, like I, I said, thought... I knew it was obvious. I was going for the one because, you know, they always tell you in, in on mm-hmm. the Living with the Land tour, yeah. they always tell you about their, you know, their experiments that went off into space. Exactly. Exactly. And, That's and, why I added it. <laughs> and that was like, oh, it's so obvious. But then there's the mission space. And I was thought about the mission space. And I was like, oh, no, I'll just follow my head. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nancy, great job! So, um, even though in our in the in the whole sweep, Craig came out, you know, two ahead. Still, I mean, really, I really well done yeah. here. But you know, but but you know, we do want you to, you know, we 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 always like to send our our um our contestants away with the prize. So of course, we are giving you a year's supply of um, Bosco chocolate-flavored syrup. Um, Bosco, mm-hmm. that's the drink for me. And, of course, it is fortified with iron. So yeah. so we hope you enjoy that with our compliments. I've had, bo- I've had Bosco. Thank you very much. I, that, was, that, was, <laughs> that was my favorite drink. That and Ovaltine before they changed it when it became manufactured in the United States. <laughs> Sigh. <laughs> what a great prize. <laughs> I know. I thought you and the girls will like it. So. No, Lord only knows anything Ian. this chocolate milk they'll love. <laughs> well, anyway. Nancy, anyway. thank you. This was great fun. It so was. Cool. I had a blast. You'll invite yeah. me back some other time? Absolutely. And I'll look forward to seeing you at Disneyland sometime soon. Definitely, definitely, yeah, we yeah. are there, and lots of lots of fun things are happening out here in Disneyland. They, so. there sure are. I'm looking forward to it. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Dis Unplugged? As always, you can find me on Tuesdays on the Walt Disney World edition. 
Thursdays on the Universal Edition, uh, random days on the Diz Daily Fix, and then, of course, you can follow my other adventures always on Instagram and Twitter at Telecluster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. On Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. And for the Disney content, you want to look at the one that has, um, of course, the connecting with Walt Banner. Um, Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling, the Diz. And as I just mentioned a moment ago, you can connect with both me and Craig um, on the Connecting with Walt, you know, Twitter page at or Twitter account at Connecting Walt. And also you'll learn a lot more about Disney history on that page as well so so thank you for making us a part of your day and remember let's never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man walt disney and his brother roy